Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we meet a horror legend, chat with one of America's finest cellists, and parse the failed unionization offered at Amazon. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for April 23rd, 2021. The boys from I-94 spoke with Sandra Niemi about her famous aunt, Vampira. Niemi discussed how Myla Nurmi fled a repressive Finnish family to Hollywood, making friends with the likes of Marlon Brando and James Dean. She reveals Myla's illegitimate son with Orson Welles and talks about how this campy horror hostess became iconic. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. So for folks who don't know who Vampira is, and I think that's probably a fair amount of people under the age of 40 uh, who may not be familiar either with um, the Misfits, who, who sang a song about her, or uh, old-time television people who may confuse her with uh, a longtime rival who I will only refer to as Cassandra instead of using her stage name. Can you tell us who Vampira was uh, and what she did that was so important? Myla Normie, my aunt, was the very first televised uh, horror host in 1954, May 1st, 1954. She was on television in the local Los Angeles area only um, hosting a, a horror show. Well, they played some horror movies and in the interim, she had the entertainment in the break in the, in the movies. Mila would come on and do some shtick and uh, she became an instant hit and gained national, uh, so, so she became a national celebrity there. <clears throat> and of course, this was an era, we should kind of, again, back up. Um, this was an era when people were kind of transitioning post-war from going to the movies. Televisions were becoming more commonplace. Uh, this was a fairly low-budget uh, show, as I recall, and, and what you tell in your book, they were looking for a presenter to host um, horror movies uh, in, you know, kind of some off hours. Did they have, first of all, can you talk a little bit about, did the TV station even have big expectations for this? Because your aunt had spent a long time in Hollywood, and I want to talk about that, but specifically about what made her name. Um, as I recall, and I think in your retelling of the what book. What made her name? You mean the name Vampire? Yeah, I mean, but just, you know, what made her famous was this effort, you know, really to get something going on television that really had not been there before, which was showing these old horror movies in kind of an off hour? Well, first of all, uh, uh, the Vampire Show was seen on um, KABC, which is um, the Los Angeles uh, affiliate of ABC. And it was shown at uh, midnight initially, midnight to one. And uh, it was just a filler, something to show some old uh, rented uh, horror movies that the station paid $100 for each. And uh, Myla had attended a, um, a masquerade ball the October of 53, and she <clears throat> won the grand prize, which was the transistor radio. She had the best costume there, and she went as Charles Adams uh, Morticia, although Morticia didn't have a name then. Morticia's from the Adams family of the 1960s television fame. 
but uh, originally uh, Charles Adam had a cartoon that appeared in the New Yorker magazine and he had this family, the Adams family, and the matriarch was uh, a mute woman um, who had, uh, who had uh, come from the grave. She was the undead, the zombie. And uh, so Myla did a costume and of uh, Morticia, and she won the grand prize. And she caught the eye of Hunt Stromberg, who was the program director at KBC. And he looked for her for five months, and then he found her and brought her into the station and explained her what he wanted. He wanted this filler, like you said, for late-night television. They wanted a host to... Uh, introduce the fair for the night, the old uh, horror movies. So Myla said, okay. And he says, well, we want to hire you, you know, Adam's family. And she said, oh, that's great. Well, who's going to be the other members of the family? He says, oh, well, you know, we, we can't afford them. We just want you. And she says, well, then I can't possibly do it because I don't want to rip off Charles Adams. That wouldn't be fair. And so he said, well, what do you propose? And she says, well, what if I change the character up a little? And he says, well, you've got four days. See what you got. So she went home and turned herself into Vampira. And she said at the time, I was wondering, what do people want? Well, what are people interested in? And she says, well, they're interested in sex, death, and taxes. And she says, well, I can do the sex and I can do the death and I'll leave the taxes to the Republicans. And so she became Vampira with the wig and the, she turned the Morticia dress around before Morticia had a high neck and a low back. For Vampira, she wore the dress backwards so it had a low front and a high back. And that's why the zipper in the original Vampira dress was in the front of the dress. And she went on air and became an instant hit. And that's what Myla really wanted. She had already blown her chances of being a movie star. She had blown her chances uh, of being a monologist. She uh, didn't want to dance anymore. She had tried that. She'd been a pinup girl for a while. So television, this new media that was out there, was her only chance of... Uh, of becoming famous and becoming a celebrity, and she succeeded. Her father was a much respected uh, newspaper editor and orator. He called himself the, the man of 10,000 speeches, and he despised uh, alcohol, didn't want alcohol around him, or uh, he really uh, believed that he helped thousands of Finnish immigrants um, stopped drinking. And uh, yet he couldn't stop the drinking in his own home because his wife was an alcoholic. And his wife was an alcoholic because in 1926, uh, they had only been married for eight years and the children were still small. And he had moved the family from Gloucester, Massachusetts to Pittsburgh, Massachusetts, a, a strange town to his wife and then he announced he was going to Finland for one year because Finland was engaged in a civil war and he wanted to see it up front and close and personal and so he left his wife and his family in this strange town no car she never drove and uh, with two small children and it was during uh, prohibition
and she became friendly with people in town who had bootleg wine. And she started uh, frequenting uh, speakeasies and bobbed her hair and started wearing makeup. And when her husband returned a year later, <clears throat> she was drinking and she never really stopped. And that was just kind of punishment for him. You know, how dare you leave me alone in a strange town where I didn't know anybody with two children for a year? You know, so <clears throat> that sort of started the ball rolling in that direction for the rest of, well, until they divorced in 1947. But Myla never wanted to be a wife. She never really planned on being a mother. That was much too strict. She wanted to be free. She wanted to be among artists who were free thinking and freewheeling and, uh, you know, laugh and talk about their art. Uh, according to Myla's father, he thought art was drawing, you know. <laughs> he didn't know that he's, when, his, when, his, when his daughter told him she wanted to be an artiste, he thought she wanted to draw cartoons or draw pictures. He, he didn't get it. And uh, both Myla, both of Myla's parents wanted her to settle down and get married and have children and, you know, cook pork chops for dinner for her husband and <laughs> carry his slippers to the chair. And Myla wanted just the opposite. She wanted to uh, express herself, whether that be in dance or acting or monologist um, is what she originally wanted to be. She wanted to be the female Orson Welles. And so that was always in her conscious. I, I'm not going to stay here and, you know, be who my parents want me to be. I have to be free. And she was. That, That's um, the kind of life she led. Yeah, you, you, you made that free clear. Spirit. It was vivid. Yeah. Um, well, that her, her staunch um, opposition to to living the the nuclear family life being a mother and and uh house housewife kind of crossed roads with with the other desire of being an artist early on in your book when she meets her idol Orson Welles can you talk about that that meeting and there's also a a a consequence of their meeting that underlays the whole book which uh I really enjoyed yes Yes, uh, Myla's God, from the time she was 17 years old and first heard him on the radio in Astoria, Oregon, and heard that, what she said, this magnificent voice, uh, uh, Orson Welles became her God, literally. And when she went to Hollywood, one of the things she was determined to do is someday meet Orson Welles and maybe he can teach me to be the female Orson Welles because that's what I want to do. Myla, for years, had been composing little stories and vignettes and then uh, reading them out loud to her mother in the kitchen and um, honing her, her, her oratory skills, I should say, because she heard her father, you know, he was always giving speeches, you know, whether it be in church or in an auditorium. Uh, she was in the audience oftentimes, so she saw how her father um, enthused, you know, the masses who just loved him. And uh, so she was, uh, she was, uh, 
you know, trying to be like her father and it interested her. And then she did, in fact, when she went to Hollywood, she did meet Orson Welles in 1943 after she had been in Hollywood for two years. And um, they dated. Uh, and then he married Rita Hayworth and uh, kind of dumped my love. <laughs> Smith spoke with cellist Tamika Reed. Reed talks about music in the age of COVID, how the pandemic has affected performers worldwide, and what's next for this Grammy-nominated musician. News from the Service Entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Your skill set is so strong. Where did that come from? How did you get? How did you get to the place where 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 you're sought upon, if you know what I mean, for your for your work? Um, I think just being, showing up, really. I mean, I think, you know, I came to Chicago in 2000, and I knew I wanted to play some other styles of music, but I didn't really know what that meant. And then, you know, I had met Nicole Mitchell two years prior. She's like, oh, if you can come to Chicago, you can play my band. And I'd never played in a band before. So, um, you know, and I was still trying to get my classical degree at DePaul, you know, um, but I knew that, I didn't want to just do classical music. So I think just remaining open and trying different things, you know, and I feel like, I mean, I really feel like 2000 or that time that I moved to Chicago to me was like a really golden time. I mean, I just feel like I made all, like all these stars must've been aligned. It's like, I connected with Nicole. I started working at the hot house and then that opened up my whole ears to like so many different things. And then through playing, you know, I start, I learned about the Velvet Lounge and just, I think just really remaining open and um, there, you know, there still aren't a bunch of cello players in town, but, you know, people are interested, like, oh, if you, people just want 
you know, they want to figure out how to write for your instrument or they want to figure out how they can incorporate a cello into their ensemble or something. And I'd always be down to at least try it, even if I had a stage fright. But I would be down to at least, you know, give it a go. And so I think just having that openness um, and just keep doing it, you know, I just kept doing it even when I was unsure about what, I, what it was I was doing. Um, you know, you eventually learn learn something <laughs> and you know there's I remember, I remember times where like you know I'd be at a Nikki gig and it's like the bass player didn't show up okay Tamika you're walking bass so it's like I'm learning that skill or maybe the bass player is there and it's like okay I want you to play with the bass player but it's like well you know in my brain it's like oh the bass has this function and it's like no you can have two you know there's you know history of bands having multiple bass players and multiple drummers and all of this was just like a huge education because I'm coming from like you know, classical world. Um, so it just forced me to, it just put me in all these different situations so that I, I guess, eventually kind of developed a language in my cello or an approach that I guess people have enjoyed. And so then they asked me to play with them. What was the process um, with you and how you approached what they wanted you to do? How did that, how did that work out? Um, I feel like with a lot of groups, um, I've been in like, you know, especially with D. Alexander, for example, should say, you know, um, you have full autonomy, do whatever, you know, do whatever sounds good, you know, and so I think, and even playing with Nicole, it's like I didn't have, it wasn't like there was a whole bunch of direction, which sometimes was kind of frustrating, because I'm like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, you know, I don't know, you know, I'm learning about the art form, I'm learning about this kind of particular area of jazz and Chicago jazz. And um, so I just feel like even with these, you know, two artists that you named, Avery and Kaya, it's like I, I wasn't really given any specific instruction. It's just kind of like you're listening. Like I remember um, like with Makairo, I think we did that at CoPro and mm -hmm. it was, I, it was kind of like, hey, can you sit in? So it was just like we were just sitting in. And, you know, it was just, it wasn't anything planned or scripted or anything. It was just like, you know, me and Junius, we play together, again, in D. D Alexander's band for a long time. So I think we have a kind of... Um, it's like an unspoken language that you have. With yeah, it's like a relationship. I mean, I feel like I have that with Junius, and then I feel like I had that with Josh Abrams from playing with, you know, in Nicole's yeah. band for so long. So you just kind of develop the kind of chemistry, a musical chemistry, I guess you'd call it. And um, I mean, I, I know with 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 you and your quartet, it's it's you're that's that's you. You're the boss, right? Mm -hmm. And you got cats that play with you that also seem to have that same. Uh, uh, binary code that you all speak with without speaking it. That, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's, you want to play with people that, you know, that you have that kind of chemistry with because you can really take the music somewhere, you know, there's, um, you know, it's just like there's this underlying kind of understanding and then just permission to just be yourself and just contribute and um, you're not, it's, no, there's no over criticizing or whatever it's just like you're just being present in the moment and trying to really have a conversation um with the other musicians so um i just feel like like with it like like i said with avery mckay i feel like you know you know this band leader you're like a curator 
you know, you're curating the, the different members that you want in the band that, and you try to um, put them in situations that um, uh, support their, their strengths and support what they can do, you know, um, and create this kind of space um, for that um, so that everyone feels comfortable contributing. So I, I would say that that's kind of what happened, I guess. How does being an educator inform how you make music for yourself? How does being an educator inform? Um, well, I guess I would say my approach as an educator is like I, I, I had I had a rough time with school, like feeling like I had a place in school. I mean, just like you know, just being a black female cello player. I mean, you're always like <laughs> the only one or one. I feel like there's a lot more. I see more <coughs> black string players these days, which I'm like, man, I wish, where were y'all when I was coming up? Right. And that wasn't so long ago. But um, I feel like I tried to be the um, teacher that I always wished I had, mm. you know, um, or talk about the things that I wish that were talked about, you know, that I would have been interested in. So like this semester, I'm teaching this black um, women in creative music class. And it's really awesome because I'm just, it's really my big excuse to talk about all these amazing black women in all these different genres. So it's mm -hmm. like, we're talking about Brides of Frankenstein and LaBelle and Ma Rainey and D. Alexander and Amina Claudine Myers and Jamila Woods. And this week we have more mother, you know, just mm -hmm. invite and also inviting them, um, inviting all of these black women into my classroom to talk from their voice, you know, from their experience about whatever they want you know um so i just feel like in that way i guess yeah it, it just like in, in playing i'm allowed to be my full self all the per imperfections imperfections and you know i think with teaching it's like you know i want to be my full self and like allow space for you know students to feel their full selves and then just to be able to talk about things that yeah i wish had been addressed when i was a student yeah we're talking with Tamika Reed, uh, composer, cellist, multi-instrumentalist, uh, wonderful vegan cook. Watch out, people. I just happen to know that. Don't don't get to asking me why I know. <laughs> um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask how the last year has went for you, considering that COVID shut the world down um, and made it very difficult for touring musicians to, 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 to land those gigs and be able to, to, uh, to do their thing and to work. How did you get uh, by this past 13, 14 months? Well, honestly, I mean, so I teach at Mills College, which is soon to be closing, but mm. um, I only teach, uh, fall, technically I only speech, teach fall semester. So I was gonna to be touring last spring. But honestly, my 2019 was so crazy tour-wise that I was like, I was looking for a break. And right, I came back to Chicago March 12th, um, like, and I think we had the lockdown like the next day or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of me was just like, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I needed this break. <laughs> I needed a break because I just was, it was too much. What I was doing was just really, really too much traveling. So um I kind of was like, oh my gosh, we all have to, I don't have to like bail on something or be like, uh, it's like, we all have to kind of take a pause. <laughs> um, I wish it wasn't at the expense of so many lives, but um, we kind of all have to take a pause. And um, yeah, I think, 
I was like, okay, you know, I think like a lot of musicians, like, okay, well, I'm going to compose and I'm going to practice and I'm going to do all this stuff. And so I kind of did that. And then I like overdid something and I like, hurt my shoulder and then I had to stop playing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just, I just went crazy because I was like, oh my gosh, like when you're touring a lot, you don't, you actually don't get that much time to practice like you normally would, or you practice in a different way. It's like, you're ready to perform, but it's not like you're practicing to like, you don't get time at like hours or whatever to practice. So I was really excited about that. But then yeah, I heard something and then I was like, you know, you need to take a break. And then, um, then I got, you know, uh, a family, a family event kind of happened. That that really has has taken up um, quite a bit of my time. Just just managing, managing that. So you also you know, had a family event that happened. Was that? You got another family event that happened. Oh yes, yes, yeah. I got married. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was funny. I didn't know how that was gonna go because <laughs> you know at first we were gonna do constellation because they were doing like. You know they had the protocol set set so that at least you could have like forty or fifty people in there. But then mm -hmm. it seemed like no, this is not going to happen. So then I was like, I guess I'm getting married on Zoom. Like this is weird. <laughs> but I, it, it actually turned out to be beautiful, kind of beautiful. I mean, I, if I can I, say that. I thought, yeah, you can. I found out you got married on because uh, I hadn't talked to you in a while. I know. Um, and it wasn't like nothing crazy. Just everybody was busy. Things were happening. I was trying to get. Uh, stuff going with the city with Corey, Corey and I, you know, just doing stuff. But when I found out, I was like, she told me about this guy. Yeah, like, oh, got married. I was so happy for you, man. I, I, I swear, I was so happy. Yeah. I just felt like, word, okay, this is a person that deserves to be happy all the doggone time, and I'm glad that 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 happened. I hate that we all missed out on a great party and perhaps one of the greatest concerts of all time. But you know, <laughs> we'll fix it. <laughs> we, got, we got plenty of spaces and plenty of friends. We'll make it make a reception happen. Yeah, that's what that's what I I mean, that's kind of what I wanted. Like I never really thought of myself as having some like big wedding and like getting a dress and all that stuff. Even though I actually did get a dress, but just like spending all the money, I just was like, right. eh. So kick it hard, buddy. Yeah, well I mean th that's what we're planning. Like when it's safe, it'd be awesome to have just like a party and people just come together and There'd be great food and lots of donuts. Man, donuts everywhere. Let me tell you folks something that you don't know, too. I learned about the love a person has for donuts from two people, Lawrence Holmes and from Tamika. And I have never seen anyone. I would I would text Tamika sometimes, like on National Donut Day, which is like mm -hmm. a, of a donut, where I'd be like, hey, I'm at such a donut day. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. And and I, I learned about... Um, I learned about uh, what is the name of the Close Your Mouth is Christmas. What's the name of the group? The, oh, the the, um, the free design. The free design. Yeah. From you, you. So now every Christmas, free design gets played. Isn't it great? I love that song. Outstanding. It's one of the greatest Christmas songs. Ever. <laughs> you got a you got a thing coming up that we need to talk about. Yeah. Your uh, event. Tell tell me about what's going yeah. on. So this is the seventh, I can't even believe it. It's the seventh Chicago Jazz String Summit. Um, I actually thought about like, should I change the name of this? Like, because some people have been like weird about the jazz, but I'm just like, it's just celebrating people that improvise, okay? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I'm super excited. Um, I didn't, I mean, 
yeah, I didn't know how it was going to happen last year, you know, just with COVID. And then it, it actually went really well uh, online. So we're doing it again online because we still aren't out of the situation. Um, but basically, it's an event that um, celebrates innovative uh, improvising styles among string players. And it's specifically targeted towards violin, viola, and cello players because guitar and bass, they're typically in a lot of jazz ensembles or in the improvis improvising ensembles. And so I want to encourage, you know, this portion of the orchestral strings to um, embrace this side or experiment with the side or, you know, I, I like I said, I, I think of myself as I want to be, I wish I had have had that me, you know, like you think about like, oh, you know, I wish somebody had told me about these different things or if they were available to me or something like that. You know, I feel like a lot of string players, they might keep playing if they know that they can do other things. I think, you know, when you're doing this classical thing, it's like, everything's got to be perfect. Everything's got to be in tune. You know, you got to have, everything's got to be perfect, perfect, perfect. And that's, yes, yes, but it's also stressful. And it's like, wouldn't it be nice to like, be able to like, speak your own voice on your instrument and not just be merely an interpreter, you know, of other people's um, works, you know, um, which it, it has its place. I'm not knocking that, but um, this particular event, though, um, every set is led by either a violinist, a violist, or a cellist, and we are including harp. We had a harp player last year, um, Jackie Carode, and we have Brandy Younger this year, and also strings of what I call strings of the diaspora. So we've had, you know, Shanta Nurula playing um, sitar, um, we've had Gordon Gardina playing oud, um, Alex Wing has actually also been on there playing oud. We've had, last year we had Tatsu Ayoki playing shamisen. And this year we have a really great um, a musician from Ethiopia um, playing masinko, which is like a one string, um, mm. one string instrument uh, that is played with a, a bow as well. Um, so, so yeah, I'm just really excited to just be able to share this. <laughs> This week on The Biden Files, the police officer who killed George Floyd is found guilty on all charges. Republicans are trying to make protest illegal. Biden makes a major climate pledge. The Department of Justice is investigating the Minneapolis Police Department. Biden backtracks on refugees and Republicans continue to claim the election was stolen. That's not true. These are The Biden Files. Day 87, April 16th. The founding member of the Oath Keepers, who was arrested in the January 6th riot at the Capitol, has pled guilty and agreed to cooperate with federal officials. John Ryan Schaefer is the first defendant known to have publicly flipped in the domestic terrorism investigation. Prosecutors hope that Schaefer's aid will build a case against the more than 410 other people currently charged. President Biden rapidly backed off a plan to leave the Trump-era refugee cap where it was and is said to be considering a raise shortly. Biden was hesitant to make the move due to political optics, but immediate blowback from Democrats prompted a rethink. As of March 31st, only 2,050 refugees have been allowed to resettle in the United States, meaning the Biden administration is on track to accept the fewest number of refugees this year of any modern president. 
Paul Manafort is said to have provided the Russian intelligence service with sensitive information on polling and campaign strategy during the 2016 election. This according to the Treasury Department. Manafort and an ally, Konstant Kilmanik, sought to promote the narrative that Ukraine, not Russia, had interfered in the 2016 election. Kilmanik was later unmasked as a Russian intelligence officer who worked with Manafort as a lobbyist for the pro-Russia president of Ukraine. Manafort, of course, was Trump's campaign manager. Pfizer said that recipients of their COVID vaccine are likely to need a booster shot in 6 to 12 months and a yearly inoculation thereafter. The announcement, which was expected, is also likely to apply to Moderna's vaccine, which is manufactured in a similar fashion. And the House Committee on Oversight and Reform advanced legislation to make D.C. the 51st state. The full House is expected to pass the bill. It will be the second time the House has done so, but that bill is likely to be blocked by Republicans who see it as adding two automatic Democratic votes to the evenly split Senate. Day 88, April 17th. A data breach at a Christian crowdfunding website revealed that serving police officers and other public officials donated money to Kyle Rittenhouse, that is the Illinois teen accused of murdering two Black Lives Matter protesters last year. Rittenhouse attended protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin over the police-involved shooting of Jacob Blake. There, he is alleged to have shot two men with a semi-automatic rifle. Rittenhouse collected over half a million dollars from that site, some with comments from police officers that read, God bless, thank you for your courage, you've done nothing wrong. President Biden lifted restrictions on the use of fetal tissue for medical research, reversing rules imposed in 2019 by Trump. The new rules, which were disclosed by the National Institutes of Health, allow scientists to use tissue derived from elective abortions to study and develop treatments for diseases, including diabetes, cancer, AIDS, and COVID-19. The IH will now manage and oversee research according to policies and procedures that were in place before the June 2019 ban. The House voted to recommend the creation of a commission to study the issue of paying reparations to the descendants of slaves in America. The commission would also consider a national apology for the harm caused by slavery. It is the first time the committee has acted on what has been a decades-long effort to advance that measure to the full House. Day 89, April 18th. Republicans have begun jockeying for a 2024 White House run. Trump's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has launched an aggressive schedule visiting states that will play a pivotal role in the Republican primaries and has signed a contract with Fox News Channel. Mike Pence, the former vice president, has started his own PAC and finalized a book deal. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is courting donors, including in Trump's backyard. Trump continues to mull his own plans and float that he will in fact seek the nomination. Speaking of Pompeo, the State Department's Inspector General found he violated federal ethics rules governing the use of taxpayer-funded resources. Pompeo and his wife Susan asked State Department employees to carry out tasks for their personal benefit over a hundred times. Trump fired the State Department Inspector General Steve Linick, who had opened an investigation at Pompeo in 2020, apparently at Pompeo's request. The White House formally reversed course on the number of refugees it will allow into the U.S. The administration said it would keep Trump's historically low refugee admissions target at 15,000. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that President Biden will set a final cap, but said that it is unlikely to rise to the 62,000 that Biden had promised in February. Jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny is apparently close to death in a Russian prison, with allies calling for new mass protests in Russian cities. Navalny, who survived a poisoning attempt by Russian agents, has been jailed on charges that are considered spurious. He has also been on a hunger strike. The U.S. warned Russia there will be consequences if Navalny dies in jail. 
The Justice Department has sued former Trump ally Roger Stone for nearly $2 million in unpaid federal tax. The lawsuit accuses Stone and his wife Nydia of underpaying their income taxes by $1.5 million and alleges that he was short on his most recent tax mill by close to $500,000. Stone has denied those charges and called it, quote, another deep state attempt to sabotage him. And the Biden administration has ordered immigration enforcement agencies to stop using terms such as alien, illegal alien, and assimilation when referring to immigrants. Day 90, April 19th. America now tensely awaits a verdict in the murder trial of Derek Chavon, the former police officer accused of killing George Floyd. Minneapolis businesses have been boarded up while police departments have been put on high alert in major cities in anticipation of a verdict. Facebook is also limiting posts on that verdict. It is feared the former officer will be found not guilty. A federal judge has revoked bail for two leaders of the Proud Boys, contending that they're too dangerous to remain free while awaiting trial. Ethan Nordine and Joseph Biggs have been charged with conspiring to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election. They are also alleged to have organized the travel for the Proud Boys group to the U.S. Capitol. The U.S. and China agreed to cooperate to fight climate change. China and the U.S. are the world's two biggest carbon emitters, accounting for nearly half of the planet's carbon dioxide. Biden is now scheduled to host a virtual summit of world leaders to discuss efforts to reduce carbon emissions next week. In a related story, the major union of coal workers also agreed to aid the transition to clean energy in return for job retraining, remediation of former coal mines, and investment in coal mining areas. The Supreme Court has declined to take up a case from Republicans challenging changes to the election rules in the state of Pennsylvania. The case filed concerned a former Republican congressional candidate and four individual voters to challenge the Secretary of State's decision to allow three extra days for receiving mail ballots, that because of statements from the Postal Service that delivery would likely be slow amidst the pandemic. And former Vice President Walter Mondale, who transformed that role under Jimmy Carter and unsuccessfully ran for president himself in 1984, has died. Mondale advocated an assertive role for the government, particularly in intervening to help the poor, minorities, and women. Mondale also made history in his 1984 run, selecting Geraldine Ferraro as his running mate. That was the first woman to be stood for higher office by a major party in the USA. Day 91, April 20th. In a major decision, Derek Chavon was found guilty of all charges in the death of George Floyd. It was a rare case of a police officer being held accountable in the death of a black man in America. Chavon was found guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter in the aftermath of that attack on Floyd. He now faces up to 40 years in jail. Three other police officers also face more charges in the Floyd case. President Biden addressed the nation following the verdict, saying that he had spoken to Floyd's family and called it a murder in broad daylight. Biden also called for real police reform and said it was time for the nation to finally address systemic racism. It was also a welcome verdict for a nation that had been roiled by protests in the aftermath of Floyd's death. It is also, in Biden's words, all too rare. Since Chauvin's address, at least 65 people have been killed by police, including a 13-year-old in the city of Chicago. And in fact, police in Columbus, Ohio, fatally shot a 15-year-old girl just moments before Chauvin was found guilty. Johnson & Johnson's vaccine will resume its rollout in Europe after regulators said the shot's benefits outweigh those risks. European regulators said a warning should be added to the shot, citing a possible link to rare blood clots, but added that that link was vanishingly rare. Similar issues have occurred with the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. In all cases, these side effects, while serious, were statistically improbable. Some 8 million doses of the J&J vaccine have been given. Only six adverse effects have been reported. 
The U.S. ambassador to Russia left after the Kremlin advised him to return home following sanctions put on them by the Biden administration. Russia's foreign ministry also announced it would expel 10 American diplomats and bar current officials from visiting Russia. Russia has also moved warplanes and 100,000 troops to Crimea and bases near Ukraine. Ukraine is now warning of war. The Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General declined to investigate what role the Secret Service played in the clearing of protesters from Lafayette Square in June 2020 so Trump could stage a photo op at a church. Joseph Kafari's staff had wanted to investigate whether the Secret Service violated its own use of force policies when it cleared the area amid the civil unrest that followed George Floyd's death. Kafari declined to approve that investigation as well as another into the spread of coronavirus among the Secret Service as Trump continued to hold campaign events during the pandemic. Hundreds of Secret Service officers were either infected with the coronavirus or were forced to quarantine. Day 92, April 21st. The U.S. Justice Department has opened an investigation into whether the Minneapolis Police Department engaged in a pattern of unconstitutional policing. That move comes one day after a state jury convicted former officer Derek Chavon in the killing of George Floyd. The new and wide-ranging investigation, known as a pattern or practice probe, will go well beyond a separate federal investigation already underway, specifically examining Floyd's killing. The new probe would determine whether Minneapolis officers routinely violate citizen rights through excessive force, discriminatory policing, or other behavior, and could lead to the enforcement of a so-called consent decree. Meanwhile, Republican legislators in multiple states have proposed a raft of punitive new measures governing the right to lawfully assemble. GOP lawmakers in 34 states have introduced 81 anti-protest bills during the current legislative session, more than twice as many proposals in any other year. Some of those bills include immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters in public streets, barring anyone convicted of unlawful assembly from holding state employment, including elected office, and barring people receiving student loans, unemployment benefits, or housing assistance. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a sweeping legislation this week that toughened existing laws governing public disorder and created harsh new levels of infractions. DeSantis called the bill the strongest anti-looting, anti-rioting, pro-law enforcement piece of legislation in the country. Those bills come in response to waves of protests last year and are part of a concerted effort to demonize the Black Lives Matter movement as an anti-American terrorist group. President Biden pledged to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. That is a doubling of the target set by the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Trump pulled the U.S. from the global climate deal in 2017. If Biden's goals are to be met, it would require a steep and rapid decline in the use of oil, gas, and coal by virtually every sector of the economy. The new target aims to see U.S. emissions drop by 50% below 2005 levels. The plan has the support of the biggest coal mining union in the U.S. Second, the FDA said that a Baltimore plant forced to throw out 15 million doses of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine had massive shortcomings. The agency said the factory had failed to properly disinfect the factory and its equipment and did not ensure the strength and purity of vaccine manufactured there. That factory, run by Emergent Biosolutions, was given a $628 million contract by the Trump administration despite a well-known history of performance issues. No doses made at the plant have, in fact, been released to the public. 
President Biden is expected to formally recognize the massacre of Armenians by the Ottoman Empire during the First World War as an act of genocide. Biden had pledged to do so as a candidate. Turkish leader Recep Erdogan is adamantly against such a declaration. Turkey has long denied its involvement in the massacre. Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day is marked on Saturday. Rising temperatures are likely to reduce global wealth significantly by 2050 as crop yields fall, disease spreads, and rising seas consume coastal cities. The effects of climate change can be expected to shave 14% off global economic output, according to a report from Swiss Re, that is one of the world's largest providers of insurance to other insurance companies. That amounts to as much as $23 trillion in reduced global economic output. Nearly five months after President Biden was declared the official winner of the presidential race in Arizona, state Republicans there are set to begin their own audit of millions of ballots. The GOP-controlled state Senate ordered that audit. It will be executed by a private Florida-based company, and it will reportedly be supported by far-right lawyer Lynn Wood and observers from the far-right news network One America. Many see it as a transparent attempt to undermine confidence in the 2020 results. Trump and his allies have claimed without evidence that there was fraud in Arizona's Maricopa County. The county has already conducted two separate audits of the election and found no irregularities. Facebook's Independent Oversight Board is expected to uphold the suspension of Trump's Facebook profiles. The decision, however, is to set a historic precedent for how the tech giant treats accounts of world leaders and could be a litmus test for the board's power. Trump's was the only case in which Facebook indefinitely suspended a sitting head of state. And Tucker Carlson told Fox News viewers that the Derek Chauvin trial was fixed because the jurors were terrified they would be looted or killed by Black Lives Matter. He also cut the mic of a police officer guest who told Carlson that Chauvin, in fact, used excessive force. Carlson wound up by telling his viewers that he and his viewers were the real victims in the case. President Biden played his first round of golf as president last week. When asked how he'd done, he told reporters jokingly that the course record was still intact. Trump, of course, was well known for playing golf and cheating and lying about his scores. He played over 300 rounds of golf during his tenure that cost taxpayers some $146 million in security costs. 64% of Americans now approve of Biden's handling of the pandemic. 60% of Americans approve of the way Biden is handling his job as president. 67% of Americans disapprove of the current legal effort to restrict transgender athletes' participation on sports teams. Nine of the 10 states showing the most vaccine resistance were won by Donald Trump. A dozen megadonors contributed $1 in every 13 raised for federal candidates and political groups since 2009. These are the Biden Files. This week, we present new music from local artist Man's Body. Off their second album, A Set of Steak Knives, this is the radio premiere of Bed of Nails.
Download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. Many people after they die, maybe these these burial methods, they it, it just seems like mitigating, you know, the risk. Your, your body's dead. You got to do something with it. You got to get rid of it some some way, somehow. So to get around this, people have started donating their bodies to science to make something of their death. Their death isn't just something that happens and they have, that they have to deal with. It's something that could be used to the benefit of, future, of the future society. Um, but the problem is, think about where your body is going to if you do donate it to science. It goes to the 1%. It goes to doctors. It goes to museums. It goes to white-collar laboratories. It goes to the military. It goes oh, you to, bet it goes it to the go, military. Goes to defense, defense industry individuals. They're gonna make you into a into a test dummy for sure. I have it on uh, personal experience. I mm-hmm. had a great aunt that was used to test artillery cartridges. Unbelievable! She How? thought that she was donating her body to science, mm-hmm. and when I, because of course I was the only one to ask, mm-hmm. I asked, "What science is Doris being used for?" And they said. We strapped her to a chair, and we shot a howitzer at her, and I was shocked. Mm. I was flummoxed. I have a, I have a similar story about a, about a relative who was uh, who was, who donated their body to science, and they were used. Guess where they were used? Oh, I can't even imagine. They were used, I don't I don't want to say any brand names, but they were used in a major automotive uh, in major automotive uh, company as a crash test dummy. That is hideous. That is absolutely hideous. And that is not the science that you want your no. body to be used for. It really no. isn't. Um, yeah, so it goes to... They don't care about your bodies. Their body is just one of a, a bunch of bodies. Don't you want your body to go to someone who is going to truly respect and love and appreciate it? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And that's why uh, you can donate your body directly to the transhumanist movement. Ooh, wow. So, And, and this comes... There's some history. This is new to me. There's some, Yeah, and there's some history behind this. Uh, you know, transhumanists, uh, are people that who who work, who are citizen scientists, they're certainly one of the you know leading citizen science groups out there, uh, uh, lead, leading DIY citizen science groups out there. They're certainly on the fringe of what would be considered sort of your 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 inner not your inner science, right? You know, they're 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 sort of the the they're yeah. solar punks in their own regard, exactly. Um, well, they do research on their bodies. They they they're trying to make their bodies better. They're trying to meld their bodies with technology and ultimately, you know, m- make themselves better versions of uh, of humans through modifications, through implants, through all sorts of things like that. They used to uh, to just to go scavenge local biomedical research centers or or even sometimes go to their local doctors or hospitals and, and sort of pick through the tissue bins. Um, and, and look for loose scraps that they can use in their research. Which is incredibly punk. It's so, yeah, it's really punk. Unfortunately, you know, again, we have uh, we have big government uh, recently making legislation that prohibits these actions as unsafe. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's... it's, it's How choice. are we supposed to have innovation if, in, if the government wants to make it illegal for individuals to get their access to flesh? To flesh with which to experiment with flesh that is not being used anymore. For, uh, that is going straight to the landfill for yeah, exactly. the pigs to eat. <laughs> exactly. Eureka Cast Now broadcasting Saturdays eight to nine p.m. on Lumpen Radio. 
The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Schellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Schellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.